Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you've done Well, good evening. I'd like to welcome you to the Stop Child Abuse Now show, sponsored by NASCA, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Penelope Bennis, and I'm from Sarasota, Florida, and with me on my host team this evening is Dr. Nancy Brown. I'm so happy to have Nancy um, with me on my host team this evening, Dr. Nancy. And uh, before I talk to you a little bit more about NASA's mission statement, I wanted to go through a little bit of housekeeping. I want to let you know that today is Monday, August 28, 2023. This is scan number 3256. Scan stands for Stop Child Abuse Now. Again, the number for this evening is 3256. The type of show we have this evening is a special guest night. We have a very special guest tonight. He is a returning guest from last week telling part two of his story for Bruce from Huntsville, Alabama. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Christopher and give you some of his background from the bio he provided us at NASCA in a few moments. But I want to talk to you a little bit more about NASCA's mission because, as you know, NASCA is all about child abuse, trauma prevention, intervention, recovery. We have a single purpose at NASCA, and it's to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. The first goal, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. The second goal, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adults survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to get involved with NASCA, a great way to get involved is to call in to our show this evening as a panel member. No experience required um, to call in. The number to call in is area code 646-595-2118. Again, that number is area code 646-595-2118, and Dr. Nancy will meet you on our back line. 
and inter, uh, introduce yourself and uh, and welcome you to the show um, and bring you into a listen-only mode um, while Christopher tells us his story. I usually break. We usually break a couple times during the show. Um, and as a panel member, you'll have an opportunity to ask Christopher a question um, or offer a comment regarding uh, his story. It is his story tonight. Um, but again, it's a great way to get involved with NASCA and to support someone who is um, who is telling us, giving us their testimony. So again, that number to call in is area code 646-595-2118. So before we bring Christopher on, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about him. Again, uh, Christopher Bruce is from Huntsville, Alabama. As he describes, he's a 62-year-old male married with five kids and eight grandkids. It's his second marriage. He said his first only lasted three weeks. Uh, he said he married her to get rid of her, if you can believe that. And actually, I can believe that because that was covered in part one of his testimony last week. It's a very um, interesting story. Um, and uh, his second marriage um, has been going 14 years strong, um, and they dated for three years prior to that. So um, have a very happy um, ending there or continuing a continuation of his uh, relational um, happy life. Uh, to quote Christopher, he's had an interesting professional life too. He used to be a professional graphic designer and as a white call professional, um, but a government-induced record um, given to him the last eight years has forced him to change to a construction-related profession. All of this was due um, because his daughter was removed from him. Um, and I know we're going to get into that part of his story this evening in part two. He actually had a podcast for four years about people like him who had had their children illegally kidnapped by CPS. To quote Christopher, for the last eight years, amidst court battles over the return of my daughter, stolen legally by the state of Iowa, I exposed governmental corruption as a blogger. He's had quite the struggle in life. And to quote Christopher again, as for my abuse story, I was Johnny Goshed, attempt, attempted, attempt kidnapped in the same city as Johnny Gosh. But this was in 1976, nearly eight years before, I hope I'm saying it, not Gosh, but Gosh. Again, Christopher, you'll have to correct me if I'm saying that wrong. But, uh, and this was covered in part one of Christopher's story, which was absolutely um, really unbelievable and just horrifically scary. Uh, Christopher did manage to escape his captors when he was old enough to start telling um, his own nearly kidnapped story. He related what had happened to his divorced mother and his biological brother, but neither of them believed a word of it at the time. That's not uncommon. To quote Christopher, my mother never believed it, and my brother, a diehard narcissistic type, didn't believe it fully until around 10 years ago when I related the story again to my cousin. It's an experience that's affected me in various ways over the years and one I will not forget. So I, I am, um, even though it's just as we know, our testimonies are, uh, are hard to uh, really discuss um, traumatic life events, the information um, and the sharing of our experiences is so helpful um, to our community um, of other adults who have the child abuse. So Christopher, I'm going to unmute your line 
And on behalf of Dr. Nancy and myself, we welcome you back for part two of your story. So thank you, Christopher. Well, that was a big mistake. Unmuting me. Anyway. um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, uh, By the way, I hope you brushed your teeth today because you're going to spend the remainder of the show with your mouth open listening to everything I have to say. So uh, I just hope your breath is fresh and that your co-host doesn't mind. Please, I think please we're share. ready. I can't see for Dr. Nancy, but I'm ready. Okay. Well, I want you to know that uh, unlike last time, my wife is with me this time, and she is going to sit by my side while we tell our story or uh, while I tell mm-hmm. our story. And when I first met her, she, it was 2006. I was 45. She was 26. And she hit on me. I did not hit on her. She came up to me and offered me some Pringles. And, well, it just kind of went forward from there. And uh, <laughs> I, I must have looked hungry that day or something. She came right up to me and offered me some Pringles. And I gladly accepted because I was hungry. And um, she's the most amazing and and beautiful and sweet and wonderful person that I'll, I'll probably ever meet. Um, I uh, swore to myself that I would not get married until I was at least 45, or 40, I'm sorry. And I kept that promise for the most part, except for that little stint we talked about last time. Uh, that was totally not wanted, so it was. I don't even count it. Um, so I didn't officially get married and keep being married until I was 45. And we dated for three years, and we got married in 2009 on August 1st. So we just had our 14th year anniversary. We're real happy about that. Now, um, now, unfortunately, it started a little bit rocky. We um, we actually had a, a kind of a bad little uh, run in the beginning. Uh, we had our house stolen from us. Now, I don't know if you think that's possible, but we actually bought a brand new house. Uh, it was a double wide trailer. And we, uh, while I was uh, gone, we, the the person that was buying it said something about needing to have a the, the title so that she'd get insurance or something, and we signed the title over to her, and she ran off with the, with the uh, property, and we never saw it again. So after, a year after we had $2,000 for it, we lost it to these, these con artists that uh, stole our house. Um, so that was kind of a bad deal. Um, we also had a couple of... Uh, we had three cars. One we had to park out in the street, and the cops were chasing somebody through our neighborhood, and they turned the corner and flipped and landed right on our truck, and the insurance wouldn't cover it because there was nobody in the vehicle. And then we had a, a brand-new Uplander. It was a 2007 Uplander, and somebody ran into our back end, didn't have insurance, and we didn't end up getting anything out of that one either. And both cars were totaled, so we lost both of those. and. So we lost both our cars and our house and everything in one about one year, I think. Um, so it was not a real good year, uh, our first uh, year or so. And then uh, because of those incidents, um, we ended up in a extended stay hotel. Now, I don't know if you've ever stayed in one of these places, but it's not the greatest living conditions. But this one was built to be an apartment so it actually had a a small kitchen and it had 
um, cabinets and so on so that we could put our dishes up there. And it, it was basically like a small apartment. So we, we actually did okay with that for a while. Um, but uh, the strain of everything that had happened in that last year kind of got to us a little bit. And, well, um, my wife started talking about wanting to have a kid. And she she was getting into her uh, her biological clock was ticking a little bit there and and but I was gotten I'd already had three boys and they were all grown up and I was really kind of not thinking about having any kids and she just kind of came at me with that at the wrong time and we got in an argument about it and we separated for a very short period of time about three months and um, at at the point of our separation. I told her, I said, if you really want to have a child, then go have one. Uh, go find yourself somebody and, and you know, have a kid. And she, you know, unfortunately, she took me literally, and she went out and, and she uh, met a couple of guys. And, and uh, well, <laughs> now you, you, this is where it starts getting weird. Um, she got pregnant by one of them, but she didn't know which one it was. And there were two of them. And the one guy was um, <laughs> a guy, I guess, that was kind of a womanizer. And when he, when she got pregnant, he was murdered at a hotel in our city by a by a, a, a prostitute, I think it was. He got married. He got murdered by a prostitute. So that person was obviously out of the picture and that's who we thought the kid belonged to. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, after our separation for a little while, um, we got back together, talked about it and we made up and we kissed and made up and got back together again. Well, little did I know that she was pregnant. She didn't tell me until I, she was, until I pretty much forced it out of her. I said, you're pregnant, aren't you? And she said, yes, I am. And she said, I'm, I was afraid I didn't, I didn't want to tell you because I thought you were going to, break up with me again. And I said, Liz, if you decided that you wanted to have this kid and you got pregnant, I said, I will support your decision, whatever it is. And she said, and, you know, and then we went about our lives. Well, she, uh, this was, in, well, this was, uh, she was, she was about six months pregnant at that point. And, um, before I noticed, well, really noticed, I, I pretty much knew, but I, I just didn't want to say it until I was sure she was ready to talk about it. But anyway, she uh, it ended up being the other guy that got her pregnant, and um, thankfully, uh, I sure didn't want to have her uh, not have a father. But anyway, um, a real father anyway, uh, because obviously this is going to be my legal child since we were married, and uh, when she had the baby, of course, we would be uh, legally bound by by legality, um, and. So anyway, when she she had the baby, uh, right before she had the baby, we I was actually talking to somebody in Florida who was a vet, and she was she was living in her car, and I felt real. Uh, I I have this bad thing about taking limping puppies in and and trying to help them out and so on and so forth. What I mean by that is I I sometimes I would find people that I really felt sorry for and I would say, Hey, why don't you come and stay with me until you get your get back on your feet again and Liz was kind of that uh, kind of a sweet person too, so she kinda of went along with that and 
much to her detriment in this case, but um, we were usually pretty spot on about who we helped and, and they deserved it and all that. But this woman here was, um, well, she was in Florida and she was in her car. It was like a hundred and some degrees. And I, I just, I couldn't stand it anymore. And the guy that she was married to had a degree in psychology or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was a master's. He had a master's degree and he couldn't find a job. And I said, well, Iowa is definitely the place to go because those people are very hot on people that have degrees and he'd probably get a job in less than no time at all. And she's, and we, we talked for quite some time before she decided she was going to come up and we were going to help her out. So she drove all the way from Florida and she got there and from the minute she got in the house, I don't think she moved, but maybe two times in three week period. Um, they basically camped out on our couch, watched TV, ate our food up, uh, borrowed money from me for cigarettes, this and that, this and that, and didn't even try and find a job or anything. So it was getting real close to the time that Liz was supposed to have the baby, and I said, you guys got to go because I'm not going to have you sitting on my couch and Liz brings the baby home and blah, 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 blah. It's not going to happen like that, so you're going to have to go. Well, she decided to go mental on me and she basically she was on several psychotropic drugs i guess and anyway she she just decided to go mental on me and she started screaming and so on and so forth and this is one of those kind of places that you don't want to piss off the owners because they're going to kick you out and all that stuff and they don't ask questions they just put everybody out and i'm like oh my god so uh, this is all i need and uh well, she screamed and hollered and started throwing my stuff, and that's when I called the police. And I called the police, and they came out. Well, she uh, she basically uh, then was uh, was told not to come back and so on and so forth. Well, on their way out of town, because they decided they were going back to Florida, they decided to call CPS. And they told CPS that we were doing and dealing drugs in our apartment and not feeding the child. Now, the baby had not gotten home at that time, but she was home by the next day. So she hadn't even seen the baby. She hadn't seen the baby. She hadn't known the baby. She didn't know us around the baby. She didn't know any of that stuff. She just called them to be vindictive. And she called them. Well, they showed up at our door at when the baby was just home for a couple of days. And they came up at our door. They knocked on the door. We, uh, my wife answered the door. I wasn't there yet. I was out looking for job. Uh, I think I was out working or something. And essentially, I uh, came back and I found CPS in our living room talking to Liz. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? Well, uh, she called and she said that you weren't feeding the baby, you were doing drugs and dealing drugs. I said, no, I don't think that's the case at all. And uh, uh, as you can see, we're taking care of the baby. We have bottles. We have food. We have everything we need right here. And we showed them everything we had. And we, we told them the whole story about what happened and, and so on and so forth. And they, by the time they were finished, and this was an hour later, they said, well, it's obviously vindictive behavior on the part of the caller. So we're just going to go ahead and close the case and call it a day. And I'm like, okay, fine. And they left. Well, they gave me they gave me two cards, and they said, well, you wouldn't mind going to get drug tested for us, would you? And I'm like, yeah, I suppose I can do that, but um, 
Really? Do you have any reason to believe I'm doing drugs? Well, no. You know, I mean, they didn't really say anything else. And I said, sure, I'll go. I'll go test. No problem. Well, then uh, the next morning after I left, they showed up again. And they showed up at the door, and Liz was home, and she opened the door. Now, remember, this is a woman who's never been in trouble in her whole life, doesn't know a thing about the law, doesn't know anything about her rights, doesn't know anything about trouble at all, or CPS or anything else. She didn't know anything about these people, okay? She answers the door. They say, grab your stuff. We're going to the doctor. You're going to have a physical done on your child for child abuse. And she goes, okay, let me put something together. And she got a bag, uh, you know, a little bag. Well, we're gonna, we're just going for an appointment, right? Yep, yep. And they, they said it would be about an hour or so. Well, she grabbed two diapers and a bottle and said, okay, let's go. And they went to the hospital. Now, they took her to a place called Methodist Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. This is a big, giant hospital. It's got hundreds and hundreds of nurses running around all the time, always in the room, Always seeing if you're okay, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, this is where she'd had the baby. Now, (laughs) she went in there, and she was there for the better part of the day. And I'm not home yet, remember. And um, they're basically making her sit through all this stuff while the first person looked at the baby. And then they just sat there for a while and with her in the hospital. And after a couple hours, she goes, what are we doing? And they said, we're we're waiting for you to see a couple more doctors. And I'm like, or, you know, and she's like, what? And they said, yeah, you gotta you gotta see a couple more doctors. We're gonna have somebody else look at her. Okay. Well, she sat there for a while. Meantime, I get home. I call her up on the cell phone. I said, Liz, where's the baby? Where are you? We're at the hospital. I said, at the hospital for what? Well, we're with CPS right now. And I said, what? And then she told me what happened. And I was like, oh, no. You tell that woman that she had no right to come back here, blah, 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 blah. And you better get back home. Well, she says, well, I can't leave because they won't, they won't let me take the baby. I'm like, ooh. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll be down there as soon as possible. I said, uh, let, me, let me see what I can, I don't, I, well, I don't remember. I, I think I, I couldn't get back down there or I couldn't get down there in time or something like that. And I said, I want to talk to her. And I talked to the worker and I said, you said this was a closed case. What's the deal? And she said, well, we just thought we'd have the baby checked out and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not going to work out. And, well, anyway, she had the baby looked at uh, by three other doctors. Four doctors now have looked at her, and they all said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with this kid. Absolutely nothing wrong with her. So what do they do? They check her into the hospital anyway and made her stay there. Now, they told her, and she said, I I can't stay at the hospital. She says, I didn't bring anything for overnight at all. I didn't bring any clothes. I didn't bring any things, nothing. They said, well, you can't leave the, leave the hospital because if you leave the hospital, that will be considered abandoning the baby, and we're going to have to uh, take her and put her, in, uh, put her in foster care. And she was like, okay. And she said, and she called me up, and she goes, I need some things. And I said, okay, let me pack some stuff up to you, and I'll get it up to you as soon as I can. Well, then they turned around and gave her a ride anyway and gave her a ride back to the house. And I said, Liz, what are you doing here? 
She says, they told me to come, uh, they gave me a ride back here to the house. And I said, oh, no, 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 you better go back to the hospital. And I mean, right now. And she, she showered, she uh, uh, got some stuff together, and I made sure she got back to that hospital as soon as possible because I knew what they were going to do. I just, I just knew what they were up to. And uh, this is not, no joke. They, they used that period of time to say that we, we, we left her at the, at the hospital all alone in a hospital, in a, in a hospital full of doctors and nurses that are watching her 24 seven. We left her there at the hospital. We abandoned the baby at the hospital and went and took care of other things that were more important, <laughs> like getting stuff to say at the hospital. Well, she said, they said that we were going to be here overnight, that they were running some tests on her, and that we could leave in the morning. Well, the next morning, they said, no, you can't leave. We're keeping her until Monday. And I was like, what? What if she had a job or something that she had to get back to? Thankfully, she didn't have a job at the time, but they were making, forced her to stay at the hospital. And for three days, they sat there and documented everything, a little teeny tiny thing that went on with her and that child. Even once they came in at one o'clock in the morning and fed and fed the baby. This is while she's asleep. The baby's asleep. They woke the baby up, fed her, and wrote this down. But then they went back the next day and wrote an additional page saying, "Oh, she didn't wake up on time to feed the baby, and she was just going to let her go without food." At one o'clock in the morning, when the baby was asleep and she was asleep. They they tried to say that she didn't wake up in time to feed the baby. Now, I'm sorry, but you and I both know there's no set time for a kid to eat. I mean, if she's hungry, she's going to eat. If she's not going to hungry, she's not going to eat, okay? And they tried to say that she she needed to wake up at four, four hours, every every four hours to feed this kid. And they were trying to say that she wouldn't do that, so she wasn't trying to take care of the baby. I mean, it, it was just unreal, some of the stuff they said. And I got all the, this paperwork, by the way. Every single solitary piece of paper that had to do with my cases, all of them are all online on my blog, all of them. Every one of 800 pages concerning this case is on the blog. Am I still being – are you guys still with me? We absolutely are. Okay, yes, well, thank you. Now we're going to continue on. So anyway, so now <laughs> after three days of being in the hospital, the worker calls and says she's coming back. I'm at home. I don't know if I can even get there in time. I said, Liz, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out your phone. I want you to set it to record, and I just want you to record her voice. You know, I want you to record everything she says. Now, I'm not kidding you. She came back. I wasn't there. For 12 minutes of 18 minutes, she beat her over the head, essentially, to give up the kid for adoption. Tell her that she needed to give the kid up, that she was, well, and then after 12 minutes of crying and not getting her to give it up, she says, well, um, I'm afraid that we're going to have to put the, the kid in foster care. Now, this is when she just starts crying like crazy. Now, I want you to know that it took me six months, six months to listen to this whole recording. I couldn't do it. Every minute that I listened to this woman talk to her, I wanted to kill her. I, I have to be honest with you. I, I, I actively felt like I wanted to go and kill this woman. 
it took me that long to listen to the whole recording. But by the time I was done listening to all of it, I understood what was going on. They broke, I'm not kidding you, at least five or six felony laws just taking the kid. That's that's just taking her. That's, that doesn't even count everything that happened after that. They, they asked her, uh, I, now you guys don't know if this is significant or not, I'm sure, but they asked her, is she, uh, uh, does she have any Indian blood in her? She goes, yes. The worker puts no on the form. Okay? She, she denied her a different jurisdiction for this child. She basically lied on the form and said, nope, there's no Indian in your blood. She's 10% Cherokee. Okay, so she just out and out lied. She went and took this form, which, by the way, was a form to give consent for removal. She did. She read her three lines of the entire form. I've got the form and the recording. I'm sitting there looking at both of them and listening to the other one. And she read her three lines of this 12-line document. Didn't give her any of the reasons for removal. Didn't tell her her rights in this situation at all. She just basically said, we're taking the kid, we're putting her in foster care, and if you don't do everything we say, we're going to take the kid permanently. That's basically all she said to her and said, we're taking the kid. And, by the way, she kept saying over and over again that it's already court-ordered. We have to take the child and put it in foster care. But they're trying to get her to sign a form that says, I give you consent to take my kid and put it in foster care. She wouldn't let her read any of the documents, put X's by the boxes to show that she under, had read and understood all these things. She didn't even read it. She didn't even read it, and she only read her three lines. Then made her file, sign it under duress saying, if you don't sign it, we're going to terminate your, kid, uh, your rights to your kid immediately. I'm not joking. This is exactly how they removed the, the, the child. And on the form by the way, about half, halfway down it says reasons or, or no, um, things done to prevent removal of this child. And there are like seven blanks there that they're supposed to fill out um, reasonable uh, efforts made to not remove the child. She didn't put anything in that. Seven blank lines, okay? She comes back with this order after only an hour, obviously, forged the judge's signature at the bottom because, number one, it was a sat, uh, it was a Monday morning. She didn't have time to go to any courthouse. The, 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 um, this judge that she got to sign it, he never, ever signs a legal document. He always takes a stamp and stamps it, and the signature is completely different. So she obviously forged the signature on the form probably just called him up and said, oh, yeah, well, just sign my name to it, and I'll say I signed my name. Okay. Came back and said, and, and these blanks are still not filled. They, they made no reasonable efforts to prevent the removal of the child. They did nothing. They just basically stole her and took her away and put her in foster care. Now, remember, I'm still on my way down there, and I'm, and I'm trying to get a ride, and I've got my ride coming, and she walked through the door. I said, Liz, where's the baby? They took her and took her and put her in foster care. What? Oh, I called this woman and I just went clean off. And <laughs> you have no idea how furious I was. Uh, surely you can imagine. Uh, so anyway, uh, later on, 
of course, they didn't have any reason to take her immediately. Uh, they basically filled in some answers as to why they took the kid and gave us a copy of this removal form and fixed us up with these lawyers and said, here, you, you've got this lawyer. Oh, and here's, here's another thing I don't understand. Why would they give us two different lawyers, one for her, one for me? Well, their reasoning behind that was because uh, the removal of the child is a stressful situation, and it's likely that you're going to probably get in fights and, and want to go different directions with it. And they were absolutely right, because you got to remember, when a, when a mother has their child removed, they're very emotional, and they will do literally anything to get that child back. This was no different. And that the man who has the child removed, He's going to be more logical and sit back and go, uh, wait a minute. No, something's wrong here. Okay. Mother doesn't care. Mother doesn't care. She just wants her kid back. She's going to do anything she can to get the kid back. The man is going to step back and go, wait a minute. Something's not right here. And try and figure out what's going on, really. Yeah. That was definitely the case in ours. Uh, but the difference was that I didn't allow her to be emotional about anything. I made all the decisions where this was concerned. I said, I'll tell you what, you just sit back and you let me handle these people. Now, I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to bore you with everything they did because they, it was so incredible. Uh, the adjudication, I thought this was going to be all over with. Everything was going to come out and everything was going to, uh, I was going to show these people that they did the wrong thing. They took every, her for no reason whatsoever, blah, 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 blah. Well, they basically railroaded us in the adjudication, and they basically just would not let us talk for the most part. Um, they made us testify, but, of course, they wouldn't let us answer anything that we wanted to answer. They just shut us up every time they got what they wanted. And it was, it was a farce. It was a, it was a comedy show. And um, they, they, I, cho I chose to fire my lawyer. I fired him after only three weeks because he said one of the first things he said to me was, um, now, just uh, just forget about how, what happened as far as them removing the child. Get your child back, and then we can fight this fight. And I said, no. They didn't have any legal right to take that child whatsoever. They stole her from us, I, and they did everything wrong, and I have a recording of the whole thing. And I said, I am not going to play along with their game. I'm not going to do everything they want me to do. They wanted me to do – I'm not kidding you. They, oh, oh, we, did, we drug tested, by the way. I came up dirty from that. I'm not surprised. My wife, on the other hand, has done nothing in her whole life. She hasn't even taken two hits of pot. She had, the second one, I think she ended up going to the hospital. They tried to call her a drug addict, too, because she had meth in her system, too. And I said, you know what? I'm not surprised that you did this to me, and I don't care what you say about me, but if you even try and tell my wife that she's a drug addict. One more time, I'm coming over the table. I was hot. These people, and the, I knew that they, I, mean, I want to tell you about the drug testing facility. I, I have to. I walk into this place. It's, it's a bare room, completely bare room. There's one desk sitting in the middle of the entire room. There's shag carpeting. It's filthy, okay? There's one desk sitting in the middle. There's a guy sitting there. He's got three forms. That's all he's got. He know he's got three appointments, obviously. He's got three forms, and he's got a pair of school scissors. They're going to cut a piece of my hair out. They didn't use any gloves, and they used these school scissors to cut my hair sample out, 
and they add me, put the hair sample in an envelope and send it off to the drug testing people. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You call this professional? I went home and I immediately wrote about this on my blog. Within, what was it, three months? Three months, we had to go back for another drug test. They had changed the entire thing. They put all new furniture in it. They built walls. Uh, they had uh, uh, the women were wearing uh, uh, uniforms and had gloves on. I mean, everything that I complained about, they changed it. They put it all in. And I want to tell you that the guy that runs that place was hot that I did this. And I'll explain that one to you in a minute. Now, I'm going to tell you that within six months, well, we didn't, we hadn't seen, I, 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 Liz got visits. I never got them. And they told me that I was cut off from my visits if I kept writing about what they were doing. So they cut me off early. I haven't seen my kid since he was three years old or three weeks old, three weeks old. I haven't seen him since. I haven't seen that girl since. She, she got to see her several times after that. But they cut us both off in October. Okay. They told us we had to get jobs, we had to get an apartment, so on and so forth. We did all that. But they refused to recognize that. They refused to come over and look at the place. They said in their reports that we never we never had them over to our place to verify this information. And I invited those people at least three or four times to come over and look at it. We got we did everything they told us to do as far as get an apartment and, and get a, a legitimate place for her to come and be at. The things that we did not agree to, however, were mental evaluations. We are not crazy. We are not mental in any sense of the word. Drug addiction therapy, which we are not drug, drug addicts. We did not do drugs. We told them this many times, and I was not going to, <laughs> oh, we just need you to go down and talk to the person. They're going to assess you and see if you need treatment. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sure they all say that we need treatment. So, no. Uh-uh. Sorry, not going for it. I mean, they, they kept asking us to do stuff, and I wouldn't do any of it. The only thing I did was accommodate them with getting an apartment and a job and so on and so forth. We did do that. They caused us to be homeless within a, a couple of weeks of taking our kids. So we were homeless for like three months, the first three months. And we finally got an apartment. We got a nice apartment in a nice neighborhood. And it was a big, giant apartment, and they they would not come over. They wouldn't do anything because they had made up their minds that they were going to get that kid away, that we were not going to get her back. And we knew that. We knew that almost immediately because they fought us every step of the way. I mean, there was no, there was no oh, you know, they're doing a good job. They're, they're going to do this. They're doing this and doing that. No, everything was all horrible. They turned in these reports that were complete lies. They they just basically lied about us the entire time. Now, at the six month mark, you're gonna love this one. At the six month mark, we had to attend a court hearing for uh, some motions that I'd filed. I filed about 20 motions. Um, by the way, I'm representing both of us at this point because her lawyer was a snake. He basically had her sign an affidavit saying how much money she made and then had her sign another one within a month because she was staying in a, home, a, a homeless shelter with no bills and they were trying to show that she could afford to pay her attorney fees. So basically they were trying to get her to pay up on their attorney fees 
And the only way they could do that was to have her fill an additional affidavit out that stated that she was living in a homeless shelter with no, and she was working uh, 20 hours a week at eight, 10 an hour and had no bills to pay because she was staying in a homeless shelter. They, I mean, this is how, how sneaky and underhanded these people were. Her own lawyer was undercutting her. And finally, we got rid of him, too. Okay, so now we're, 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 we're doing ourselves. Now, it's about this time, oh, about December or so, that I said, okay, this is enough. I can't stand to watch my wife anymore suffer. I can't watch, watch her suffer anymore. I, I'm just going to give in to these people. I'm going to do everything they say. I'm going to get your kid back. And she was just so grateful to me, and she was just so, you know, she was just crying and crying. And I said, I have to get your kid back for you. I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I went to court, and I told them that I was very meek. I was very humble, and I said, I'm going to go ahead and do everything you're asking me to do. Now, I had called my lawyer or called the prosecuting attorney and told him this before the court hearing. He said, that's a very wise decision, Mr. Bruce, and I'm glad you decided to do this. And, and then he said, I'll tell the judge and, and so on. Well, then this, <laughs> the social workers bring this guy with them. I'd never seen him before. He's sitting in the pew with them, and they're all together, sitting all together. And after the hearing is over, she said, well, I said, they came up to me and they said, Mr. Bruce, we need to talk to you. And I said, okay. So I go over to, to them and they said, this is Anthony Reed. He is the, man the managing uh, director of the uh, drug testing facilities all over Iowa. And he would like to drug test you. This is the owner of probably, what is it, 40 or so drug testing facilities all over the state. And he drives down there personally to drug test me. Now, don't think I don't know that something's up. Immediately, I suspect what something's up. He takes me to the bathroom where he's going to have me do this drug test. And this is in the courthouse, remember. He takes me to the, there. And now, remember, I had no idea this was going to happen. No idea whatsoever. And they take me to this bathroom, and he stands there to watch me pee because he thinks I'm going to put fake pee in it. And I said, why are you watching me? He says, well, because we have to do this. We, we want to make sure that you don't taint the, taint the sample. And I'm like, I didn't even know you were going to do this. How would I have something to taint the sample with? Well, anyway, I said, okay, pervert. You want to watch me do this? I'll do it. So I sat there and I peed for him. And then he's putting the, the lid on it. And I said, so tell me how this uh, test works, will you? And, and as he's, uh, you know, messing around with it, he starts telling me how it works. And he says, Okay, so what, what the deal is, this is a, you pee in this cup, and there's three ways to tell that you, you're doing drugs if you're doing drugs at all. He said, the first is that there are these little tabs here, one for each drug, and if the tab goes up, oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. The first way was that it, it's like a pregnancy test. It tells you whether you're doing drugs or you're not doing drugs. It's a yes or no thing. Okay, so it's like a pregnancy test, and it puts a, a positive line if you're positive for drugs. And there's nothing showing if you're not. Okay. Then the second part is that there are these tabs, and they go up to meet the line at the top if you're doing that drug in particular. Okay. Then he says, and then after that, we send a sample to the lab, and they verify our findings. And I said, oh, really? I said, so, what, so, so what's the cup doing? 
and he starts turning the cup away from him so I can't see it. And he starts taking pictures of it. He says, well, I'm going to send some pictures to the, the social worker, and she's going to tell you about how the test worked out. Now, I had just bought a car, so I had um, um, I, I said, okay, fine, whatever. And then he takes the, and then he says, grab the cup now, and he says, and take it and throw it away. So I grab the cup and I throw it away in this garbage. And he says, okay, that's it. And then he leaves, right? So I know exactly what's going to happen, all right, at this point. So now I go back into the bathroom after he's out of sight. I go back in the bathroom and I start reaching down in the, bath, in the trash. The problem is the trash is locked. So I go outside and I, I talk to the sheriff out there and I said, hey, could you do me a favor? I dropped my keys. I just dropped my keys in it. And said, so I dropped my keys in there, and I need to get my keys out. And he says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll unlock it for you. And he comes in, and he unlocks it, and I grab the keys, and I grab the cup. And I go out to the truck, and I start looking at the cup. The cup doesn't have a mark on it. There's no positive mark. None of the tabs have risen. Nothing. The test is completely banal, okay? There's nothing going on on that test cup. So I said, oh, isn't this interesting? So I called the, the worker and I told her, I said, well, guess what? Um, uh, Anthony tested me and I'm clean. But I knew that wasn't going to be what he told him. So in the meantime, I go to pick my wife up and they want us to go out to the testing center where we were before to take her out there to get tested. And of course, you can imagine my shock when I walked into the place. It's completely sterile. There's, there's no desks, no nothing like that. It's just like a, a, there's a wall that separates the rest of the room from the waiting room. And I mean, it's just, it looks like a doctor's office. Okay. And I'm just out of my mind shocked. I'm just like, wow, he did all of this because of my article. <laughs> so anyway, so we're waiting. And I said, okay, now I want you to do this. I want you to do this. When they take you in to get a test, I want you to ask for a witness. She says, okay. In the meantime, I go back out to my, my van, and the worker calls. She goes, you came up dirty for meth again. I said, I'll bet I did, and I hung up on her, okay? Now I'm waiting for my wife to get done. She comes out, and she goes, she comes out, she's got the cup in her hand. She hasn't even tested yet. And I said, wonderful, give me that cup. We're going to take that home. We're going to pee in that cup, too, and see what happens. So she gets in the car. She says, well, they wouldn't give me any witnesses. And I said, I'm not surprised. Let's go home. So I go home, and um, I peed in the second cup. I put the lid on it. I look at the cup. It hasn't done a thing, okay? Hasn't done nothing. Doesn't give me a positive or a negative. No tabs are going anywhere. Nothing's going on. I said, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. So I take the two cups. And I file them into the case along with about five, six different motions <laughs> that are all really important. I've got them now. They've been falsifying my drug test. So I write a big article about it. I put it up online. They read it. Now when he comes into court to testify about the drug test, everything has changed now. The story has changed. Oh, he's the one that threw the cup away and... And, not, and it didn't go anything like Mr. Bruce said. I said, oh, really? Is that the truth? Then, now get this. You're going to love this. I'm the legal father, right? They've been torturing me for six months in this case. 
The judge throws me out of the case, says, I don't belong there. I'm an extra father. They have the real father. They've contacted him. They've got the biological father. They don't need me in the case anymore. I have no interest and no rights where this child is concerned. I'm the legal father. How do I not have any rights? They tell me I don't have any rights for that kid anymore. Now they're going to give the kid to the – no, first, they found the father, by the way. They found him, went and told him that he had a kid. He didn't know that she was pregnant. He didn't know that she had the baby. She didn't know she even had a kid for four months after the kid was born. It was just when DHS went to find them and tell him that he had a kid that he knew. He didn't want to have anything to do with her. He didn't want to talk to her. He cut her off completely. wouldn't let talk to her on Facebook, nothing. Just cut, had sex with her and cut her off. He'd gotten what he wanted. He didn't want to deal with her anymore. So, so then they were going to terminate his rights, and then all of a sudden, when I get thrown out of the case, now all of a sudden they want to give the kid to him. They changed it. His lawyer, who I've written several times and said, this judge is crooked. He's going to do some crooked things, blah, 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 blah. Well, she did the crooked things. She basically talked to him ex parte, and uh, they worked together to deprive me of my kid. And uh, basically, they talked this guy into taking the kid. Oh, and by the way, he didn't have to do a, a darn thing to get this kid. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to, well, he's a, he's a fine, upstanding individual who works 40 hours a week and he, he doesn't have any mental issues, and we, we've determined that he doesn't have a drug problem. And I'm like, oh, you guys are doctors now. Oh, okay, that's wonderful. And, I, I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff they did. Oh, oh, and by the way, at one point during this, this period of time, they called – oh, I remember what it was. I called on January 1st – or no, 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 no. This was about um, something about – Oh, I couldn't come and visit the kid anymore because I was writing on the blog. And I told them, I said, I will sue your butt. I will make your lives miserable as hell as long as I live and blah, blah, blah. Well, they called the police and told them that I was harassing my active case social worker, by the way. And, and her and the supervisor lied to the police, told them that I was harassing them and, and that this and that had happened and so on and so forth. And I'm listening to this guy tell me about all this, and I said, you know what? That can't be right, and I'll tell you why. He says, why? And I said, because I left them a message, and I said, call me back, and they never – and they did not call me back or something. I don't remember what it was, but it destroyed their entire story. And he says, well, I guess I'm going to have to have another talk to those social workers again. And I said, I guess you're going to, and I never – and nothing ever happened. I didn't get arrested. Problem is, they did it again. Now I'll tell you when they did it. They did it right before the termination of my parental rights hearing. Now in Iowa, if you do not show up for the termination of parental rights hearing, you have no standing with which to appeal to the Supreme Court. They knew this. So what they did was, about a week before the termination hearing, they put out a warrant for my arrest for harassment of the social workers, who I had called. On January 1st, I was a little bit drunk. I called them up and I told them, I said, I, enjoy your life or enjoy your job because you're about to lose it and some other stuff. They said that I said, enjoy your life because you're about to lose it. 
and put this into a report and put out a warrant for my arrest for, for uh, threatening a social worker with their life. Okay. Now, remember, we have filed the transcript in the juvenile case saying what was said on that recording, and it did not say that. It didn't say what they said. And I told the judge, I said, all you have to do is look at those transcripts, and you will see that they are lying. But anyway, neither here nor there, during this time, we decided we were going to move away because I didn't like the fact that they knew where I lived. I didn't like the fact that they were able to um, do all kinds of they, – they kept um, – we asked for every document in the case from a lawyer, by the way. He wanted – he sent her a thousand or something dollar bill wanting her to pay for these documents that he was copying off. I said, thank you very much for your bill. You're not getting a damn cent. Forget you. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, I just could not believe some of the stuff they pulled. Anyway, we moved away. And we did not tell anyone where we had gone. And these people put out the warrant for my arrest. For the next three months, they tried to find me. Couldn't find me, couldn't find me, couldn't find me. And I got a little bold. I called the police officer and left him some nasty messages and said, you couldn't find a hole in the ground if it was reaching up and biting you. And told him, I don't know who you think you are, but you are no detective. You can't find me. And, you know, I taunted the guy at all times. Now, get this. He puts a, on Facebook, on the police page, which, by the way, is still there after, what, 2015? It's been there for eight years, slandering me. Basically called me a, a hardened criminal. I was dangerous and armed. Told him I was dangerous and armed. And people that I had not seen in 20, 30 years all of a sudden just jumped on this page and started commenting under it. Every one of them said, I know Christopher Bruce. He'd never do anything like this. He's never, he's never threatened anybody ever in his life. He's, he, we've gone out and drank together. We had a good time. And, I mean, they all defended me. $500 reward, nobody would turn me in. Didn't, <laughs> didn't get a single hit on this. Okay, said I was armed and dangerous, and I was trying to steal the kid, and blah, 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 blah. He, he tried everything he could to get me arrested. Couldn't find me, couldn't find me. You know what he finally did? You're going to love this one. You ready? You got your mouth open? Get ready. He calls Obama's Secret Service and tells them that I said something on my blog that was a threat to the president's life. You know what it said? It said, I'm going to go to Washington, and I'm going to sit on Obama's doorstep until he does something about the corruption in my state. This was a threat to the president's life. I live 1,500 miles away from D.C. I have no car, okay, and I'm a threat to the president's life. This is how they came and got me. They finally found me through the Secret Service. The Secret Service found me through my computer, and then they came and arrested me and drug me 85 miles back down to Des Moines, where I was supposed to be. Now, get this. They dropped the charges three days before trial because they have no evidence. They have nothing to, 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 to base this crime on. They have nothing, absolutely nothing. I, of course, bailed out on the smaller charges because I wanted to get home. My wife's at home alone. She can't take care of herself all the time. 
I have to get home. So I bail out on the little charges, and they dropped the charge, the, the big charge, because they didn't have any proofs. I took the harassment charges. <laughs> I don't know how I could harass an active case social worker, but, yeah, I'm supposed to be in constant contact with this woman, but I'm harassing her. So I don't know how that's possible. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, now, get this. Two months after they terminate our rights, which they did. Oh, and by the way, we got the transcripts for the termination. The minute I started reading it, I knew that this event had never happened. Why? Because a judge who had nothing nice to say about anybody ever, not even the, the people on his side, who didn't say two words, really, during any part of this hearing except to say what his ruling was, okay? This guy went on for three or four pages, uh, just saying all kinds of flowery, wonderful things that he would have never, ever in his life said. They transcribed a fake hearing. They never held the trans. They, they said, oh, well, he's not going to be there. He's in jail. And they basically held this hearing without holding the hearing. They didn't hold the hearing. They just made up a bunch of stuff, typed up a bunch of stuff on paper. I'm not kidding. I, I already know that there was a guardian ad litem that never said anything either. He never said one word during any of these hearings. He goes on for five or six or seven pages talking about all kinds of intelligent uh, and, and, and well-thought-out things. And it's really a shame that we have to do this to these parents and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, you have got to be kidding. Nobody in that courtroom would ever, ever say anything like this. I knew it never happened. It didn't happen. Okay? So, anyway. So now, remember, I haven't shown up to this hearing. So now I have definitely no right to appeal. I appeal anyway. I appeal, and they come back at me with the answers, of course, saying, well, he missed his termination. He didn't show up. He didn't bother showing up for his uh, termination hearing, so uh, he has no right to appeal. Man, I slammed the hell out of those people, and they heard it. They heard the case. But now get this. Supreme Court upholds the ruling, vacates the termination of my rights. How do you terminate the rights of somebody that you said had no rights? The judge tells me I have no rights and throws me out of the case, then turns around and terminates the rights that he said I didn't have. How do you do that one? But he did it. And he said that he did it over an overabundance of caution, just to make sure I didn't have any rights. That's why he did it. That's what he said in his opinion. Okay. So they terminated the rights they said I didn't have. After they'd thrown me out of the case, I had to show up at this hearing to terminate the rights they said I didn't have. Then we appeal it up to the, uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, in the meantime, <laughs> you're going to love this one. In the meantime, I set up a hearing at CPS in front of the administrative law judge. We're going to go over the child assessment, and we're going to see if they did the right thing in taking my kid. I asked for this, okay? I had to do this, so I did it. And we set up a hearing. For two days, I called 40 witnesses, filed so much paperwork in this case that they, oh, you should have heard me drill that social worker. Oh, my Lord. Guess what? Social worker had no experience with newborns, none, when she took my kid. Had never removed a child from a home before. 
This is the woman they sent to take my kids. No experience with that whatsoever. Had never taken a child from a home before and had no experience with newborn kids. How are you going to determine abuse or neglect in a kid that you have no experience with, in a baby that you have no experience with? How are you going to determine that? You don't. Basically force the doctors to lie on their reports. Told them to find anything they could. All of these doctors said she was in perfect shape. There was nothing wrong with her. But they turned around and said, we, well, there may very well be an abuse in the town. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong with her. There was nothing wrong with her. None. And then they turned around and lied. And we got them to admit it. I drilled these, all these witnesses. I called them all. They were all hostile. Every one of them. It was all the doctors, all the nurses that had signed all these papers that they had filed against us. I, I, man, I called the social workers. I called the lawyers. I called everybody. And I got most of them on the stand. A couple of them wouldn't get on the stand, of course. But anyway, now guess what? The judge rules in our favor. Says, shouldn't have ever taken your child. It was a mistake. We're taking you off the abuse registry. Your record is clear. Then they appeal it again. The attorney general's office appeals it again to the director of DHS. I wrote him a letter. I said, you deny this ruling, and I swear to God, I will make your life a living hell. And I guess he listened because he came back and said, oh, yeah, the judge said the right thing. <laughs> judge said the right thing. I'm sure he had to. He had to. He had to say it because there's no way you could rule any other way. So now, get this. Get this. Eight years ago, kids taken. They terminated our rights in six months. Two, late, two months later, the judge rules that they should have never taken our kids. You know, we're still fighting to get her back eight years later. How do you not fall all over yourself trying to get this kid back to me? They have never returned that kid back to the mother. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, no, it gets better. I filed a federal lawsuit against these people. 42 elected officials of every type and size and shape on every level of government, cops, judges, lawyers, everything, took it to federal court, took it all the way up to the Eighth Circuit Appellate. Um, the judge on the, on the um, district level in Des Moines, she, she, she didn't get anything right in the, in the, in the appeal, nothing, or not, uh, nothing right in the case. She basically wrote a 39-page decision after making this wait for six months, wrote a 39-page decision, got none of the dates right, got none of the events right, just basically just started, I mean, she basically just skimmed through the thing and picked out whatever she wanted to pick out and totally ignored every violation of our rights in, in, in every way, just passed over everything and made just numerous, numerous legal errors and time errors and party errors and so on and so forth, people that were involved. He tried to say the adjudication happened on the day the termination happened. And I mean, it was just totally wrong. I appealed this up to the Eighth Circuit. They basically came back with a two-line decision. We find that the district court made all the right uh, decisions in this well-thought-out thing. I'm like, are you kidding me? After everything I submitted to you, all the proof that I submitted and all that other stuff, and you're going to tell me that she made the right decision? She couldn't even get the dates right. She couldn't even get the parties that were involved right. 
How do you make a well-thought-out decision about something you don't even know what it is? All the, all the courts are corrupt when it comes to this kind of thing, I want to tell you. And, and they found a way to get it to be confidential so that nobody could see it. I mean, you can go online and you can look up the case. You can see the case. You can see it happened. But you can't see anything in it because they, they found a way to make it all confidential. You can't see a damn thing that happened to in any of it. I must have called every news station in the world. Some of them started calling the FBI every time I called them. Wow. Uh, the the um, district attorney, who I would not leave alone because of what he did, the actual district attorney, the one that was never in the courtroom, but the one that signed all the legal papers saying, oh, yeah, we need to remove this child and blah, blah, blah. Him, I made his life live in hell. I wrote him emails every day telling him all the great things they were doing to us. And then I was going to make him suffer for every bit of it. This man started calling FBI officers all over the country. And these people were going through my emails. For four years, the FBI was on my computer, digging through my emails, logging in behind me on Facebook. I used to catch them at it. I had a way to catch them. And I caught them at it. And every time I'd catch them, I'd screenshot it, post it online, and then put it on my blog and then send them the link. So they knew that I was watching them watching me. They pissed me off. I tried to call them so many times and deal with them. They they were just rude. They would not even listen to me. They wouldn't have. They didn't. They wouldn't take any reports. They wouldn't write anything down. Uh, they basically called me a, a, a insane and God knows what else and a drug addict. And I mean, I just I, I could not believe. I called. I must have called fifty law firms to get something done about this during the course of this whole thing happening. 50 law firms. Not one of them would take this case. It was an open and shut case. They forged the signature on the removal. They deprived her of the Cherokee jurisdiction completely by saying that she didn't have any Indian in her blood. I didn't even know why they asked it. It took me like four months to figure it out. I didn't know, even know why they asked that question or why she even lied about it and said, no, she didn't. And then I found out why. Because if you say yes and they determine that you, you're part of a tribe, they have to relinquish the child and the mother to that jurisdiction, to the Indian, uh, to the Indian jurisdiction. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted the kid. And they were going to let the, the foster parents adopt them, and that, that's when they changed everything and just gave it. Uh, to the father who had absolutely no desire to have anything to do with the mother or the kid, obviously, because he cut her off. Didn't want to have anything to do with it until he found out he had a kid. Then he wanted it. Didn't want her. Didn't want her to see it or anything. Just wanted the kid. I I mean, you would not believe all the stuff I've I've gone through. I've been arrested... 15 times over over writing the blog and, and fighting these people. 15 times when I was in Iowa. Um, they'd make up stuff just to just to arrest me. Uh, harassment, uh, stalking. I was stalking them. And, oh, well, yeah, I think any parent would stalk you if you did this kind of thing to them. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe. And uh, needless to say, that set me on kind of a a course of uh, fighting government. And not only that, but exposing when they did things that were just plain out, just unbelievable. 
couple of years ago, I got arrested for uh, fighting the mayor of a city I lived in. You don't love this one. Fought the mayor of a city uh, that I lived in uh, against putting in 5G in, into the city, and I had all the information I needed. I had all my documentation put together well. I presented this at wow. several city council meetings and fought this guy the whole way on it. And um, little did I know he was trying to set me up to have me um, arrested for stalking him. But he had this uh, this sheriff watching me at all times, or this uh, sergeant watching me at all times. And finally, I got so tired trying to get through to him that I finally filed a federal lawsuit against him. I, I had a good good purpose to file a federal lawsuit, and I filed it. I sent him a copy in his email. Within four hours, four sheriffs showed up at my door to arrest me on a, a misdemeanor stalking charge. They broke down my door with guns drawn to arrest me for this. A misdemeanor. Searched my apartment without a search warrant. Took me to jail. I spent four months in jail on a 50000 cash-only bond, said I was a danger to the community. And then when they got everything done that they wanted to get done, they let me go free of charge. I want to tell you, our court system is so corrupt, you have no idea. No idea. Nobody would ever know unless they went through it, and then they know. I, I've, I've tried to help uh, divorce pe- people that are going through a divorce. You wouldn't believe what they do to those people. They set them at each other's throats, and it takes five to six to eight to ten years for them to get divorced because the, the lawyers are working against each other, and they're basically just uh, setting the people against each other. They, they may have started out with, you know, we're going to give you the amicable divorce, we're going to give you this, we're going to use that, and then we're going to let you have so much visitation. Then they, they set them up, and they basically say, oh, no, we can't have this because we need their money. So they basically set them up to where they fight with each other. And then they start one-upping each other, and, and they'll keep that divorce going for uh, – I've seen cases where they kept it going for 10 years. 10 years, just over over uh, a little alimony and, and a few things. 10 years. You would not believe how corrupt our system is of justice. It's just unbelievable. If I went into it, we'd, we'd have to do three or four more shows. Because I know things that I shouldn't know, and that's part of the reason they keep arresting me, because I know stuff that I shouldn't know, and I tell people about it, and they don't like it. There's a lot of things they don't like about me, and I don't care, but I keep going. That, and I want to tell you, anybody that would fight this hard for somebody, that, a kid that wasn't even theirs, you know, I've got to have something good going on in my heart. This is my wife. I love her, and I wanted her to have her child back. So I stood in their way. They were attacking her, and I stood in their way and said, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to come at me if you're going to come at anyone. And I basically stood in their path and said, you will not attack her. You will not talk to her. You'll talk to me, and we'll see what we get done. But because we wouldn't play along, they decided early on that we weren't going to have that kid, and we knew that. We knew it. We knew the whole time. There was one day that her and I just sat and looked at each other and said, they're not going to give us our kid back, and she started bawling. And I said, Liz, I'm going to fight for that kid as much as I can, as long as I can. I swear to God I will, and I kept that promise. 
until probably last year. I just, I, there, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. I took it as far as I could take it. And there wasn't a single lawyer anywhere that would ever do anything for us. They'd all take the case. And they, you know, they listened to what we had to say, and they were all excited. And it was, oh, wow, yeah, that sounds like a really good deal. We're going to have to take that up on it. And then we'd call them back, and they'd, well, we're, we're not able to take it. It's just too much work. Well, that was one thing they said. It's just going to be too much work. What? Oh, it's just the case is too big for us. We, we really can't handle this. And one guy tried to tell me he was just ready to go on vacation, so he couldn't take any new cases. And I mean, you wouldn't believe all the excuses that they used not to take the case. And I called everybody in government. I called probably 60, 70 agencies of government. Not a single one will take responsibility for the, the actions of the social worker. Not one. Health and human services. Not even them. Oh, we don't have any way to control a social worker and what they do, they do. And I'm like, are you insane? You're the people that put these people out. How do you not have any control over them? And then it hit me. These people don't work for us. They don't work for our government. These people are being paid by outside sources to do this to us. And, you know, when I started this blog about all this, you know, I started out thinking I was a one-of-a-kind case. That I was the only one. And when I tell people, they were just like, almost every one of them was like, oh, they can't do that. Oh, they can't do that. I said, yeah, but they did. And here's the paperwork. Prove it. <laughs> they did it. So here it is. Well, there must be something else. They wouldn't take your kids unless there was some, some reason to take it. Nobody believes it. Nobody believes that stuff. Nobody believes that they do this stuff. But they do. Did you know that the uh, National Center for Exploited and Missing Children uh, the NM and uh, what was it? The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That's NSMEC. Deemed that CPS is responsible for 88% of this country's missing and, and sexually exploited children. Did you know that? Can you repeat? Can you repeat that statistic? Oh, most certainly. Um, yeah. I, I published an article on my blog. That, that this was from the head of the NSMEC, the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Sex, uh, Sexually Exploited Children, has found that CPS is responsible for 88% of this country's missing and exploited children. Wow. Did you get all Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Oh, and there was another article that I found uh, from years ago. I don't, I don't remember where I got this article, but it, it is the most phenomenal article. It explains everything that led up to this, this kidnapping of children and why they do it and, and how it all started and how, how it began with uh, and who it began with. Did you know that uh, Hillary Clinton is the one that wrote the entire act that, that – uh, financially incentivized the stealing of children all over this country. She was the one that actually wrote that whole act. Hmm. Something else I discovered about the Clintons, guess what else? During the course of their uh, his presidency, Bill's presidency, they ran experiments in every single state on the best way to remove children from families. I'm not lying. I have uh, one of the, the samples up on my blog. One of the samples from our state and one of the sam samples from one of the worst states, which I think was Illinois. But I put them both up on my blog. I wanted people to see this. They, they actually 
ran the experiment for uh, varied times, depending on the size of the state. But essentially, one of them ran for three years, where they just took kids and, and decided whether this was a good idea, whether that was a bad idea, and, and then changed it and then did it again. I'm, I'm not lying. He did this. They actually did this. Um, I'll have to send you the links to these. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm really bad with names. Not not Ms. Brown, the other one. Penelope, yes. thank yes. you. Penelope, how could I forget that name? I don't know. But uh, Penelope, I'll give you the links to those two articles, and also the the articles about the about the best way to remove kids from families. I'll, I'll send you that one as well. Um, the one article just explained perfectly everything that was going on, why it was going on, and and it was. And at first, I thought it was just me. Then I thought it was. Then I found out people all over the state were getting their kids taken the exact same way. Then I found out this was happening all over the country. I'm not – I've had three Facebook profiles, uh, folks, and I want to tell you that every time I get close to 5,000, Facebook locks me out of the profile. They would never let me have more than 5,000 friends. They've they have constantly taken down stuff that I put up. Um they they are just uh, they have lessened our fight to a degree to where it's not even effective anymore. I mean, basically nobody can see what we're posting, and you know, and they and they shadow ban us all the time. I'm sure my my blog on Google, by the way, uh, from the minute that it started, I knew it was being ban- it was being uh, cut down on on the on the views. I've had it running for years. I have 323,000 views on my blog. Now, I happen to know that just the victims alone have been to this site a lot more than that or have looked for it or whatever. I know that for a fact because I've had people ask me. I had I, I had so many people coming at me with stories that wanted to tell stories. I had to actively put stories on every single night on blog on blog talk radio every single night for for years just to get a lot of these stories out there and if you if you do a search on blog talk for america's deadly sins i come right up i've been on three different networks um one was uh the freedom for all network or something like that another one was um, uh syndicated news i was on syndicated news for a while uh and then i did it on my own the rest of the time and I put all of my shows on the blog, but I don't know how many of them are still up. I don't know if you can access most of them. But I do know that there's a good portion of them that, from when I did it that are still there. So you can get on those, and you can listen to some of these stories. They're just absolutely horrific. I used to sit there and listen to these people talk, and I'd sit there and I'd go, oh, my God, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I've never heard of this happening to anybody and I, I thought it would be the worst story I'd ever heard. And then the next night, somebody would come with something even worse than that. Um, there was a lady that once contacted me. She didn't want to be. She didn't want to be recognized. She didn't want to talk to me in public. She didn't want to do any of that stuff. She'd call me, and she'd she'd be real shy. She didn't really want to talk. She actually videotaped social workers taking kids through a haunted house to screw them up mentally because they get more money for them when they're screwed up mentally. Took them through the haunted house and just kept putting them through the haunted house over and over and over again to to uh, tear their personality apart. This is not a joke. That These is people have not been stopped. 
these people have got to be stopped. I don't I don't know where it all went wrong, but I'm going to tell you that in 1997, Hillary wrote this act that that incentivized the more the more kids that you take every year, the more money you'll get. And just basically, they they had to increase their numbers every year, or they wouldn't get funding from the from the government. This is not a joke. I mean, this is how they put it. The language they put it. So these people got well, money know, for I taking think... so many kids, and then they'd get more money if they took more kids the next year. So, so yeah. Christopher, I don't mean yeah. don't wish to interject, but we only have a few minutes left of the show. Oh, so and sorry. I think this might be. A, oh no, it's so it's good. Thank you for sure. I mean, so much information you shared oh, with us glad tonight. And I'm very appreciative of you coming on and you know, giving your testimony, um, part two of your testimony. And I think, you know, some very important um, topics have come up. And most poignantly, um, and this is where I think it's a good, you know, a good segue into closing out the show. Uh-oh. I got a lot Yeah, I did. I lost her. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't intentional. Hello. Now I'm gonna 